So open our Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> this morning we've come to the epilogue, the closing portion of uh, the letter, beginning at verse 6 through the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through seven, uh, 6 through 17 uh, this morning, but I'll read uh, 6 through the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 22. Begin reading at verse 6. This is God's Word. And he, that is the angel who's speaking with John, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. So this is the angel speaking for Christ. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my spirit to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as I said this morning, we've come to the final words of this magnificent letter and the final words of the Bible. Final words are generally recognized as important words. Um, We Uh, When a loved one dies, we care about our last words to them. More importantly, we care about their last words to us. 
last words have a, a, a special significance, a special weightiness. Well, these are the very last words that Jesus gives to his church. It's the last word Jesus has to speak in his written word. There's nothing after Revelation 22 except maybe your maps. This is it. It's the last thing Jesus wants us to hear. And it has all the weight and all the significance that, that you would naturally attach to that. Now, Kevin Young makes the point that the book of Revelation seems to end somewhat anticlimactically. Uh, for instance, uh, 22 verse 5 would seem to have been a great ending. Uh, Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. End. That would have been a nice ending. After all the wars and the persecution and the trauma that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation, um, that would have worked. It's how Hollywood would have uh, certainly have ended it, and everyone lived happily ever after. It's not how Jesus ends his letter. And the reason he doesn't end there is because uh, verse 5 doesn't capture the primary purpose and intent of this letter. The, the, the central purpose, the primary purpose of this letter is not to uh, tell us about the joys of heaven. The primary purpose of the letter is tell us, to tell us how to get there. That's the primary point. Jesus is writing to motivate his church then and today to persevere in faith, to persevere in obedience, to persevere in love, so that when he comes, we are ready to meet him and will be able to enter into the new heaven and earth with him. And so this closing then makes exactly that point. Jesus wants us to see the overwhelming significance of what he said and, and to show us the direct and immediate impact that these words should have and must have on our life if we want to be saved. The conclusion of the letter, these last verses, can be easily broken into three parts. Um, the first part would be a word that these are words to be kept, verses 6 through 9, and then these are words to be proclaimed, verse 10 through 17, and then these are words to be preserved, verses 18 through 21. And in, um, for, for each instance, you have this refrain, behold, I am coming soon. That's verse 7 and verse 12 and verse 20. And so Jesus uh, is holding before us this morning uh, his word, and our necessary response to it, to keep it, to proclaim it, and to preserve it. I'm not, those aren't going to be our three points this morning. We're going to save the last one, Lord willing, for the next time. But uh, we will be looking at the first two, a word to be kept, a word to be proclaimed. And so let's, let's look at these. Um, Jesus is writing to show us, to press upon us the fact that the king is coming soon, and therefore, uh, we must pay attention to his words. Verse 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what, uh, what must soon take place. 
Um, I want you just to note first the significance of these words, this message. Jesus begins his closing remarks by highlighting the value, the immense weight of his words. These words are trustworthy, reliable, infinitely reliable, and they are infinitely true. We were told that as well in chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne, Jesus said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is not just a statement about the veracity of these words, but the immense authority and weight of these words. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we had similar uh, words used to describe Jesus himself. So in Revelation 3.14, we're told that um, to the angel of the church in Laodicea commands John to write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. In Revelation 19.11, we saw a rider on a white horse, and the one who was sitting on it was called faithful and true. Eric Alexander, uh, I think, points out uh, exactly right, that the principle here is, is very clear that the written word of God, the, the book that you hold in your hands, is as faithful and true as the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ himself. And these words come with all the weight of all the authority of Jesus in his own person. In other words, it is not possible to draw a line between the authority of Christ and the authority of his written word. You will hear people say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, I just don't agree with everything that's in the Bible. In fact, in fact people will call that the, the idea that you have to uh, believe and submit to everything that's written in the Bible, they will call that fundamentalism, they will call that bibliolatry, you're making a God out of your Bible. Well, this text is saying, and it is not possible to accept Jesus as he is the faithful and true witness to the will of God, that you cannot, you cannot accept him and then not accept the words that he speaks with the same authority that you should rightfully give to Jesus. Jesus and his word cannot be separated. Jesus, remember, said to the, some of the disciples who were following him, you can imagine this scene, they love Jesus, they like what he's doing, they want to be a part of this movement, and Jesus turns to them and he says, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you to do? They don't understand discipleship. That's Luke 6, 46. Rather, Jesus will say in John 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And if you don't do what I command you to do, you're, we're not friends. That's what Jesus is saying in John 15, 14. And so as Jesus closes this letter to his precious church, he wants us to just sense 
the incredible significance and the weight of Jesus' words. This is his word. They're trustworthy and they're infinitely true. And we will be judged according to our response to them. That's the second point he makes here, the necessity of keeping it. Verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, that is a bookend statement to a very similar statement that we read at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, where where we read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So Jesus wants to be very clear. He begins the letter and he ends the letter the same way. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, what does it mean to hear and to keep? Well, the very most simple way to understand it is it means to obey it. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who obey the words of the book of Revelation. Now, that might surprise you because um, we don't generally think of the book of Revelation as a book of commandments. We think of it as a book about end times. A book about prophecy. But the fact is that the book of Revelation is is full of commandments and it has a it has a pedagogical purpose. It has a teaching purpose. In the letters to the seven churches, if you remember. Jesus of uh, five of the seven churches had a rebuke for them and a command that they must repent. If you have your Bible, just quickly go back to chapter 3 and we'll look at just a few instances. Chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Five of the seven churches, Jesus commands them to repent or he will punish them in some way. Remove the lampstand or um, bring on them judgments, plagues. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. This is to the church in Sardis. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Those are not encouraging words. Look at verse 19. This is to the church in Laodicea. So he's rebuked them that they're neither hot nor cold. He's going to spit them out of his mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Church in Ephesus, um, they're strong in their orthodoxy, but they've lost their first love for Christ and for the mission. And Jesus says, Unless you re- if you do not repent... Um, I will remove the lampstand. You will no longer be a church. There are commands throughout this book. We've been, Jesus has been calling us to wake up throughout the book. To wake up to the reality of spiritual things. To wake up to the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. The destructive power and intent of the devil and, and uh, the beasts who are at work in our world today to destroy the church. The coming judgment of God. 
the glories of a new heaven and new earth. Jesus wants us to wake up to all of these things. Every letter that, of, the, of the seven letters, they all end the same way. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, pay attention and apply. Obey. <clears throat> Jesus has given us this letter, friends, so that we hear it and we keep it. This letter is meant to snap us out of our love affair with sin. It's meant to wake us up to the immense value of an eternal soul, the fleeting nature of this life. It's meant to wake us up so that we tremble before the glory and the wrath of the king. It's written to to, uh, make us run for shelter to the lamb whose blood was slain on our behalf. This is a book meant to move us, not to intrigue us, not just to inform us, but to motivate us. Because it's about us and our response, the necessity of our response to Jesus. Notice in our chapter 22, verse 7, that the God of the spirits of the prophets is speaking in this book, or uh, verse uh, six, 6 or 7, I'm not right there right now. But the God of the spirit of the prophets, why does he say that? Uh, he says that in verse 6, because, you see, uh, dude, uh, Revelation is much like the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament, their primary role was not to inform or foretell uh, things that are going to happen. That's not their primary role. They would do that, but they would always do that in the context of revealing, um, in, their, in the context of their primary role, which is to reveal the will of God, including his promises and his warnings, and then to call God's people to keep the will and word of God. That was the role, the, the prophets were there to press on the people what God is saying, what God is purposing, and calling the people to respond, promising them blessings if they will obey and judgments if they don't. That's what prophets would do. We have in Deuteronomy 32, verse 45, as Moses is finishing up his ministry, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Jesus is telling us these are not empty words. These words are our life. By these words, we will enter and possess the promised land. And if we don't, we won't. So if you allow false teachers, if you think that's a small thing, and you're willing to, to abide with, with teachers who are not faithful to the Scripture and are, who are going to lead you into compromise with the world, Jesus wants you to know that you will lose your life. If you allow moral compromise in your life, if you compromise with the harlot of Babylon and the spirit of this age, Jesus wants you to know you will lose your life. 
If the realities of heaven and hell, as portrayed in this book, do not mold how you think and how you live, you will not enter heaven and you will certainly enter hell. Those are, this is Jesus' message to you. Now, this is really important because we live in an age where obedience sounds like a harsh word, not a gospel word. You'll hear people say, um, Christianity is about a relationship, it's not about rules. Well, that would be news to Jesus. And it violates what we experientially know to be true. Every authentic, intimate relationship has rules that must be obeyed for that relationship to flourish. For example, if you are married, there are rules. They're not written rules, maybe, but they are inviolable rules. There are things you can't do if you're a married person. You cannot go on vacation with another man or another woman. That's a rule. You can't have a secret lifestyle or a secret addiction or a secret family. It's a rule. It's first commandment rule. You shall have no other gods before me. Fundamental rule of an authentic relationship. There are things you can't say, right? You can't say hateful, derogatory things to your spouse, to your wife, or your husband. That's the third commandment. You can't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, um, these are rules that we just acknowledge to be true. There, there are places you can't be. There are things you can't look at. There are, there are, there are just, there's just guidelines that have to be um, respected. And, and you see, the rules are there to protect the relationship. The rules exist to create the intimacy. And if you truly love your spouse, you will embrace the rules because you love what you're experiencing and enjoying with your spouse. And when you violate them, and you will in, in a variety of ways... You will, as a married person, you'll do this in your relationships, in your friendships. You'll break the rules. But when you do, you see, if you love that person and you love that relationship, you, you, you will confess it and it'll grieve your heart and you'll ask forgiveness and you'll strive for repentance. Why? Because you're some weird fundamentalist legalist? No, because you love the person. And you love Jesus. And your Jesus is calling you to live authentically in a love relationship with him. Jesus says, John 15, 9, abide in my love. You know, that happens by, that happens by abiding in his word and his word abiding in you. And you want the words of Jesus to mold your life. You want the words of Jesus to be the rule, the guide of your life because you believe that those words have the power to make you like him and to unite you to him. And so as Jesus concludes this letter, he wants you to know that this letter and this book are his words and he tends us to keep them. He means us to keep them. Let me just ask you this morning, when's the last time you just sat alone with maybe your Bible and the Lord and, and said, where in my life, Lord, do I need to repent? Examine me, show me my heart. What is not in keeping with the reality of who you are? What is not in keeping with the things that you've said? What is not in keeping with the reality of, uh, of spiritual warfare and a coming heaven and hell and a day of judgment? 
Where do I need to repent? What needs to be changed? What needs to be molded and fashioned according to your will and according to your word? If you've not asked that question in a long time, Jesus is saying to you this morning, get on your knees. He loves you. He wants you to hear and keep his word. Secondly, it's a word to be proclaimed. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. It seems like a strange thing for Jesus to say. It sounds like he's condoning filthiness and evil. Well, those words are best understood in the context that I believe the early readers would have immediately grasped, and that is Daniel chapter 12, where we find almost identical words. Daniel, as you know, is a prophet, lived 600 years before Christ. Uh, Daniel also received visions from angels, just like John, about the judgments of God, about the end of time. But Daniel, in Daniel 12, verse 9, the angel says this to Daniel, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel is told that the words are being shut up. They're being sealed. Why? Because the time is not near. They're they're for another time. They're for the, the end of time. Well, now John is told the opposite. Don't seal it up. And the very reason is because the time is near. The time is near. Do not seal it up. These truths are meant to be published, written, sent out, proclaimed. This is a message to be proclaimed. The church has a calling in the world to not seal up the message, to proclaim the message. We can seal it up, right? And we do out of fear. What will people think? What will people say? We can seal it up through apathy. We're going to live our life and ask for the Lord to bless us, but as far as the eternal state of, of, of our neighbors and people we work with, that's just not going to be something that we're really that concerned about. So we seal it up through apathy. We can seal it up for fear. And Jesus says, you must not do that. This is a message to be proclaimed. Jesus means for the church to to let the world know that there is a king who sits on the throne of this world. And we need to let the world know that he alone is worthy to open the scrolls, that he is the one who is unfolding the sovereign purposes of God. And he alone is worthy of worship because he alone has has shed his blood and purchased the souls of men for God. People need to know that this Jesus now is inviting them to come and drink, that this Jesus is coming soon, that he's set a day when he will judge, and that they will either stand in, in sheer terror and be judged and sent to hell, or they will stand there with rejoicing and singing and be invited into the new heaven and earth. That's the message. That the church is called to proclaim. And it's an urgent message. Because the time is near. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me. To repay each one for what he has done. You see, the king right now is on his throne. But the king is coming. 
judgment is coming. There will be a day when this age of grace is ended and we enter into the age of judgment. And I think that's how best to understand verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Notice in both those, in, in that contrast, there's a doing and a being. So some people will do evil and be filthy, and some people will do righteousness, do right, and be holy. And the point that, that is being made here is that when Jesus comes again, people will be what they are, and there will be no opportunity to change. So um, when, when Jesus Christ returns, you will be what you've chosen. If, if you've chosen to to love evil and do evil, if you've chosen filthiness, when Christ returns, that's how you will experience him. That's how you will find him. You see, it's very similar to the, um, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. I don't have the time this morning to go into it. You can read it maybe around the, the table this afternoon. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about um, 10 virgins, five who are wise, five who are foolish, and they know that the master is, is going to come. The bridegroom's going to come. There's going to be a wedding banquet. Uh, five of them have brought enough oil. Five of them have not, and when their oil runs out, they go to a nearby city, but while they're away, the, the master returns. The bridegroom comes, and the doors are open, and all the guests enter in, and then the doors are closed, and the party begins. And then the five foolish virgins who had to, had to go to a nearby town, they're late and they show up and they pound on the door and they say, let us in. And the man at the door says, I'm sorry. It's too late. And forever, there are those on the inside who would enjoy the wedding banquet and there are those on the outside and it cannot be changed. It will not be changed. And that's exactly what the text speaks of next. Verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter in the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is going to be the reality on the day when Jesus comes. There are going to be those who are on the outside, the dogs, that sounds derogatory, it's just a reference to pagans, those whose God is their belly, who are driven in their life by their basest desires, like animals, and then there are the sexually immoral, those who love sexual sin unrepentantly, either openly or secretly. This is a message to be proclaimed in our day and age. Those who are murderers, either physically or with hateful words or slanderous tongues. Those who are idolaters, who love and serve comfort and reputation and pleasure and security. And they love that and need that more than God. And everyone who lies, everyone who practices falsehood. Of the, of the list of sins we have in the book of Revelation, there's three of them. This is the, this is the one thing that shows up in, in each case. Those people who lie, people who don't tell the truth, people who embrace falsehood. There are six things, even seven, that the Lord hates. He hates a lying tongue. It's contrary to all that he is. It is, it is from the pit of, of hell. 
That's, that's what Jesus wants us to know. But notice this. This is so important. What's the distinguishing difference between those on the outside and those on the inside? That is the most important question in your life. What's the distinguishing difference between those on the outside and those on the inside? Your, your soul, your eternal soul depends on this. Because the difference is not what we might assume it to be. Those on the outside are defined by their sin, by what they do, which flows out of who they are. What's the defining characteristic of those on the inside? Look at the text. It doesn't say uh, those who are without sin. The difference is those on the inside have washed away their sin in the blood of the Lamb. They've washed away. The Blessed are those who've washed their robes. The gospel message, friends, is that God in Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners to wash away their sin. When Ananias calls Saul to full faith uh, when Saul was converted, Acts twenty two sixteen. why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's the message that Jesus has for this sinful world, that sin can be washed away when you confess it, when you repent and turn and you, and you trust that, that God has made a way in Jesus Christ for you to be forgiven, when you believe that he bore your sin in his body on that tree, that he died in your place, bearing your guilt. And when you, when you claim that, when you receive, when you take that, the Bible says that God washes away the sin. It's gone. The guilt is gone. The stain is gone. And so the great difference, friends, on the last day is that some will be judged according to their deeds and some will be judged according to the washing, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Some will stand there covered in the stain of their sins and some will be there who've washed that stain away by the precious blood of Christ. There are seven benedictions in the book of Revelation. Seven blessed are those. The first one was in chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed are those who hear the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the seventh. You know how important seven is in the book of Revelation. This is the blessing of all blessings, the capstone of blessings. Blessed are those who've washed their robes. What is the blessedness assigned to them? It's this. They have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter into the city by the gates. You are invited in. That God welcomes you to come and taste the fruit of everlasting life. And you are a citizen of the city and you have access to the presence of God. That's the blessedness of those who wash their robes. And Jesus invites us to do exactly that. This is finally a gospel to be received. Jesus invites the sinners of this world, the spirit and the bride, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Notice we're, we're the ones who hear, and we join with the spirit. We're the bride. So the spirit says, come, and the bride says, come. To sinners, to this world, to each other. Let the one who is thirsty come, and, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Can you just hear the tender love of Christ here? Jesus, Jesus knows you, and he knows me, and he says, come. Have you defiled yourself with sin? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. 
Come, come, wash it away. Wash the stain away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And do it again and again and again and again and again until you get home. Have you parched your soul serving the gods of yourself and your sin? Are you thirsty for change? Thirsty for holiness? Are you thirsty for God? Do you want God? Do you want Christ? Do you want to be like Him? Do you want to be found in Him? Do you want to be with Him? Then Jesus invites you to come and drink freely of the water of life. Let let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It It is there for the asking. Friends, this letter should leave us feeling like there's something essential at stake here. This is not just a sermon. Jesus Christ right now is speaking to you through his word. Jesus Christ right now is inviting you to drink the water of life. And his, his desire is that you would. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And his gospel is that water. All that God has accomplished for sinners in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. God calls you and me today to drink that message. To be washed in that blood. This is the message that brings life to all who believe it. And Jesus calls us to keep this word then. To believe it, to trust it, to take it to ourselves and and let it mold our lives in obedience and joy and faith and love. And Jesus calls us to proclaim this message to a lost world because the time is near and the judge is coming. But maybe most of all, Jesus calls you and me today to drink of it. To drink it today and all of our days and to live. I don't know where your heart is today. I have no idea. You might not know where your heart is today. But the gospel invitation is that you can know as you, as you take and drink as you confess your sin, as you believe the gospel, if you've never done that before, I plead with you to do it today. And if you're a Christian, been a Christian for all your life, but maybe you've stopped drinking, I just encourage you again, Jesus calls you to drink and drink and drink so that your soul may live. It's free for the asking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that we are people this morning who have not kept your word. We, Lord, um, this, this morning acknowledge that we've loved what is evil. We've, we've engaged in murder with our tongues and sexual immorality with our eyes and hands and bodies. We are people who believed lies, lies that our culture tells us, lies that we tell ourselves. 
and we've justified our, our behavior and our outlook because of false things that we've believed. And so, Jesus, we, we feel the weight of your words. Forgive us, Jesus, for attempting to experience your love with no or little concern for obedience. I thank you, Jesus, that you call us because you love us to hear and to keep. And not only, Lord, to hear your commands, but to hear your invitation to come and drink and live. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be a church that does right, a church that is holy, as you work your sanctifying, cleansing power in our lives, as you apply your word to our secret sins, to our hidden idols. As you lay us bare, O oh Jesus, before you, the one who sees and knows, your eyes are like burning fire. Jesus, please don't let us have a form of godliness without experiencing its power. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we sense your presence and, your, and, and hear your voice through your word, that we would respond with faith, we would respond with, re, with repentance, and that we would experience water flowing through our life, abundant water spilling out, so that we, Lord, would have a message for other sinners around us that Jesus is a sufficient Savior, that the gospel is wonderfully true, but that a day is coming when Jesus will return to judge each man, either according to his deeds or according to the blood that's been shed. And so, Jesus, I, I, I pray that you'd give us both a joy and a, and a sense of calling to speak this truth to ourselves, to our families, that we do not simply assume things, but we call each other to faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus, and, and that, Lord, in, the, in, in this world in which we live, then we fearlessly and lovingly speak this wonderful, wonderful gospel truth. And Jesus, I pray that you would, when you return, you would find us to be faithful then, faithful to keep, faithful to, to proclaim, faithful to drink of the wonder of the gospel for great sinners like us. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond by rejoicing in the gospel and its cleansing power. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>